WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Well, again, everybody, welcome to another special edition of City Talk. I say special because we have the privilege of talking to a remarkable man, kind of a, shall we say, protege of Superman. And he is Michael Hayde, who has written a book on that very subject. Michael, it's, it's great to have you back again uh, to discuss a, a program that we both used to watch on TV a long time ago. That's um, very true. Thank you for having me, Ken. How did how did all this how did all this start? Superman had to be created, and like every other show at that time, it wound up on radio. If you can, in a short time, tell us the whole scenario about the two gentlemen that created it, about Bud Collier and uh, Jackie Kelk and Joan Alexander that that uh, spawned part of our history. Okay, well, you do realize that Superman turns 85 this year, uh, and it was considerably more than that. It was more like 90 years ago that two teenagers named uh, Jerry Siegel and Joseph Schuster, who lived in Cleveland, in a Cleveland suburb, I believe, uh, created this character, this character that was supposed to be uh, a conglomeration of Samson and Hercules and every strong character that ever existed in literature and subsequently only more powerful and, of course, a strange visitor from another planet. <laughs> and uh, yeah. that's how that started. They start, It started as fan fiction, basically, um, because both Siegel and Schuster were science fiction at devotees. Uh, they'd both seen the movie Metropolis, which came out in 1927 or 28, somewhere around there. And uh, they were uh, very big into writing. And uh, Mr. Schuster was big into drawing. So we have uh, these two teenage boys who are very creative. And eventually they get into the nascent comic book industry. Um, and it take them, took them a few years, but they managed to sell the character of Superman to a uh, company called National Comics. And from there, uh, we get to uh, the character becoming very popular in comic books and uh, leading to the inevitable merchandising of the character outside of the sphere of comic books in terms of... Uh, dolls and toys, uh, hiring an actor to play him at the uh, 1939 World's, World's Fair in New York, and uh, from there to radio in 1940. With Clayton Bud Collier. That is correct. Mr. Collier's audition was the, the best of the bunch. Now, as I wrote in my book, and which he made no secret over the years, he was absolutely horrified at the idea of playing this character <laughs> and uh it, it took him you know a, a little while but eventually he warmed up to it and and in the end he ended up enjoying himself a great deal i used to love to hear the i mean i never heard it on radio except for the recordings but i used to love the change of voice when he would go from clark kent 
to becoming Superman. Yes, and that was really the thing that sealed the deal for for him being cast was the fact that it was two very distinct voice personalities, and yet it was clear that they were being delivered by the same person. Now, you had a couple of other people that were in radio as well. One was Jackie Kelk, who played Homer uh, in the Henry Aldridge shows, and Joan Alexander, who played Margot Lane, the the girlfriend of the shadow that's right yep and uh they were you know radio was centered in new york city at the time and the idea was to keep busy if you were a working actor and you were in radio um depending upon how talented and how versatile you were you could keep busy every day of the week with a different show and do very well for yourself. And uh, Kelk and Alexander were certainly among that uh, that tribe. Was it was it difficult to get it on the network uh, at that time? At the very beginning, yes. The networks wanted no part of such a, a fantastic. I mean, it was the same thing with the comic books. It took them two or three years to finally place Superman, and that was only because you know the, the comic book company was hungry for material. They had launched a, a title called Detective Comics in, in 37, and in 38, they wanted to la- launch a, a, a publication called Action Comics, and they needed action heroes. And, and of course, Superman was the very first of those. Um, but there were, people forget there were other features in Action Comics besides Superman. Um, it's just that Superman eventually overwhelmed <laughs> practically the entire industry. So now, getting when, back, yeah, getting oh, back I'm to, sorry, go ahead. Um, no, go, go ahead. ahead, go ahead. You ask me. When, when Superman first started, it was following the usual soap opera routine of 15 minute episodes combined into one story that would drag out over maybe a week or a couple weeks period, and then went into a half hour format later on. Right. And in those days, the serial format was what kids listened to. It guaranteed that you would be you would have an audience, you know, the kids would be tuning in every day to find out what happened. Uh, the Superman was just one of many shows that followed that particular blueprint. Um, that was children's radio back in the forties. Uh, when television came in, it changed. And, uh, that's why it was more in the, uh, the TV era. That's when Superman became a half hour standalone, uh, episodic series on radio. Um, now, of course, what, what ended the radio show and how did it get to TV with Robert Maxwell? Well, Robert Maxwell had belonged, had been an employee of the publishing company or a contributor, I should say, to the publishing company uh, even before uh, Superman was taken on. Uh, you know, purchased from Siegel and Schuster by that company. He was one of their employees and uh, and one of their writers. He was a very creative man. Uh, grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, the the son of a uh, a very affluent dentist, and uh, was uh, just you know it, he was extremely creative, and he had the respect of the publishers. And so consequently, when they started thinking in terms of publicizing Superman, uh, they certainly wanted to get him on radio. 
and uh, Maxwell did have some limited radio writing experience at the time. So he and Alan Duchovny, who was a publicity man uh, and also a, a would-be writer, created the earliest radio scripts that were used as, as pilots for, for selling a series. But you had asked about the networks. The networks were just, were just uh, appalled at the idea of this. And, and some of the early storylines had war themes. And we hadn't yet in 1940. We had not yet entered the war. Uh, there was a definite loud faction of Americans who wanted to stay out of Europe because they still remembered how horrible World War I was. And we, uh, it, it, it was just, they, they all turned thumbs down. And, and the way you got radio shows on when the networks aren't going to take it on is you look for a sponsor and uh, they buy the time. And that's what happened with Superman. They found uh, regional sponsors. In New York, it was the Hecker's Cereal Company, the makers of H.O. Oatmeal, which I remember as a child. That, that lasted into the 60s, uh, that particular product. Next. And that, and oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, you're next. No, what's your next? <laughs> next question? <laughs> well, it was, it, it was a cereal company that uh, eventually helped get the, get the uh, show on television. But but who helped get it there? Well, again, Robert Maxwell had by the time television was starting to take off. And uh, I, I still maintain that one of the biggest uh, one of the biggest influences was the success of the Lone Ranger on television that came to TV from radio in 1949. And it, they did it on film and it was very, very popular. It aired on network television on the abc network so it was and it was a family show it wasn't strictly for children and i think bob maxwell saw that the potential of doing superman that way if you're going to move it to tv it's going to be expensive you're going to have to do special effects and the the the, the upshot was that if you're going to spend all that money you need to draw a family audience, not just an audience of little kids. Uh, you want, you know, their parents also have to be involved here. So he crafted the show first. And when, when, when Superman went to uh, a half hour on radio, he did a 13 week prime time version of Superman. They aired at like eight 30 in the evening or something like that. One day a week on radio. And the scripts were very, uh, sophisticated and in those scripts it wasn't so much Superman as it was Clark Kent and, and Lois Lane getting involved in a mystery and Superman having to show up at the last minute now if that sounds familiar that's because that's how <laughs> the, the pattern that the television series subsequently took and some of those radio scripts were repurposed as TV scripts um, uh, the stolen costume being probably the most famous example yep that was in the first season Yes, it was. Um, but before it came to TV, it had kind of a prequel screening of, of Superman, if you will, with Kirk Allen and a lady who eventually became the second lowest lane, Noelle Neal. Right, right. And that was, uh, of course, they wanted to get 
Superman, the comic book company, as part of their publicity, they wanted to get some kind of a motion picture thing going. And there was talk with uh, with Republic back around the same time that the radio show was being launched. They were in discussions with Republic for doing a serial uh, movie serial of Superman. Um, but that fell through. And uh, eventually what happened was it became a cartoon series through Paramount, which was a, uh, you know, Paramount at that time had its own theaters. So and was a much, much bigger, much more prestigious outfit than than uh, Republic was. So that was kind of a no brainer. And but then after the com uh, the cartoon series ended and the radio show was still going on. And there was talk about possibly even that early, there were at least in the back of Maxwell's mind was the thought, you know, eventually we're going to have to get into television. Um, Columbia Pictures approached them and said, hey, we'll do a serial. Uh, and that's how that happened. Kirk Allen was cast and uh, Noel Neal, who had worked at Columbia in other things, uh, serials for this particular producer, Sam Katzman. And they uh, that that serial did very well. Um, I have not seen official box office figures, but I am told that it was the most financially successful movie serial ever. And and how did we get into George Brewer Reeves? Well, we get into him through the fact that uh, eventually the decision was made to do Superman on TV, and he was one of approximately 200 actors who auditioned for the role. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. A lot That's of, amazing. They, they really looked long and hard. And he had had previous experience, and, and I didn't know this for a long, a long time. He was in Gone with the Wind. Oh, yes. Yes, he uh, he had a, a lengthy career. He was never a star. He didn't uh, have the opportunity to turn his uh, his film work into not, none of it was really a, a shot at stardom. He had leads and some big pictures. He was put under contract to three studios during the 1940s. Uh, first Warner Brothers at the end of the 30s. And then after his year with them was up, he went over. He was signed by 20th Century Fox. He spent a year with them. Then he went over to Paramount. And while he was at Paramount, he got drafted into the Army, went away for several years. Uh, and when he came back, he went back to Paramount. But they really didn't have a whole lot for him to do. And then he eventually ended up working for Sam Katzman at Columbia in a serial called The Adventures of Sir Galahad. Uh, and did a lot of B pictures for, for small companies. And he did a lot of television. Um, he, he tried New York for a year after Hollywood kind of burned out on him in the late forties. He went to New York for about 18 months doing live TV. Um, some of those things are on YouTube. Some of like escape escape. I think he's in one or two of those and suspense, things like that, that went shows that went to television, uh, from radio that he did okay. live in new york so yeah so there's uh he has a, a tremendous body a tremendous resume um it just none of it was star making um the closest he got was the picture he did with claudette colbert so proudly we hail and he went into the army while that was in release so uh, he never really had a chance to capitalize on it 
Now, you had a regular cast in television, including Reeves, Noel uh-huh. Neal, Jack Larson, John Hamilton, and Bob Shane. Yes. Tell us about all those people. Okay, well, let's not let's not forget uh, the, the the one who is at last I heard was still with us, Phyllis Coates, who played. Wow, is, oh, is that right? I forgot about her. Yeah, yeah. she was the first Lois. <laughs> she Lane. was the first. Well, she was TV's first Lois Lane. Yes. Yes. And uh, so all of those people that you mentioned were cast by Bob Maxwell and uh, director Tommy Carr. Everyone except Noel, who came later. Um, she, they were all very, very professional. They had all had body of motion picture work. Uh, Jack Larson, even by that point had, uh, done a few pictures, um, and, uh, starting in like 1948. Uh, so they'd all been around. They'd been, they'd done their share of, of TV work as well. Episodic TV guest appearances on different shows. So they, you know, they were all professionals um, and they were cast based on their ability. So it's not like there was some kind of magic formula where, you know, the closest you get to the magic formula is Reeves, where, you know, Tommy Carr looks at his profile and sees the, the, the chin jutting out and the swept back dark hair and realizes, geez, this guy looks like he just stepped out of the comic book. (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was about the only real serendipitous moment everything else was uh these are professionals they can play the parts we like their readings they're good let's let's use them now they also did a a two-part episode the first year uh that eventually turned into a movie actually that i I assume came after superman's coming to earth well, I got to tell you that that is not correct. Um, it is mo- not correct. The movie, the movie was first. The movie was the first thing they shot, and it was released a year before the series came to TV. Ah, and, and okay. The reason, and the reason they did that is because the the whole first season, all all of those episodes were done on spec. There was nobody bankrolling this thing except National Comics. Uh, it was it was their money. There was no sponsor yet. Kellogg's had been a sponsor of the radio show for many years, but they had dropped it by 1948. Um, and and the radio show, that was another reason why the radio show went away, was it, it wasn't able to keep a sponsor for very long because sponsors wanted to put their money in the, in the new medium of TV. All right. Tell us so, about the movie. It was rather unusual. Yes, it was. It was a, and the intention was always to repurpose it as a two-part TV episode. That's why it's so short. Nobody had any illusions about this being a big, super spectacular thing like the first Christopher Reeve movie. This was done quick, and it was the first thing on the schedule because they knew that if they weren't able to sell the TV show to anybody, at least they could recoup the, some of their investment, if not all of it, by through the box office of release of a, of a feature film. And so that's how that came about. It was a short 67-minute feature. It undoubtedly played as half of the double bill um, wherever it was shown. It came out around October, November of 1951. 
And, uh, you know, again, didn't do, it wasn't a spectacular box office smash, but it, it did respectively. And at least it got Reeves and the others and, and Phyllis Coates out there uh, as Superman and Lois Lane and kind of set the stage for the eventual coming of the TV series. All right. Tell us about the movie. Well, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, Store a science fiction story about creatures from the center of the earth that doubles as a morality play in uh, intolerance and uh, not assuming the worst of people who are different than you are. Okay, and, you know, just because they come up from the center of the earth with a weapon that looks like a an Electrolux vacuum cleaner, <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are violent or that they're going to incite violence. They just want to protect themselves. And as it turns out, it's some of the citizens of the town uh, that that are the real villains of this thing, they, because they assume that the creatures are trying to dominate and take over the world and they're not going to have any of that. And uh, sick guns on them and dogs on them and uh, and. Superman, who of course is an alien himself, needs to step in and set things right. So uh, short and sweet, 67 minutes long, and uh, does the job. Now, when uh, the show went to TV, I didn't realize this until I read it in the book, that uh, Superman's father from the, the, the planet Krypton was Philip Cromwell, who played Mr. Boynton on the TV show Armist Brooks. Robert Rockwell. Robert Rockwell, yes. What did I say? Uh, I, I <laughs> You didn't say Robert Rockwell. That's all I know. Oh, but okay. yes, you're right. It was Mr. Boynton, from, who later became Mr. Boynton on, uh, on the TV version. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a good show, and it's... It, it's Brooks. It's a good first episode... And it was also from a radio script. The same thing happened on radio. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Almost word for word, that speech that, uh, that Jor-El gives to the Kryptonian Council uh, about how Krypton is going to be destroyed very soon. Word for word, that, that practically, it is the same speech that shows up in the very first script that Bob Maxwell and Alan Duchovny wrote for Superman for the radio show back in like maybe the end of 39, beginning of 40. Okay. So, yeah. So that got repurposed a lot. Obvious question. Superman, the sound of Superman flying was easy enough to create on radio, but television wasn't as advanced as it is today. So how did they take care of both problems on radio and television? Well, at first they tried using just a hand-cranked wind machine, like the kind that you would use to create a uh, the sound of a tornado or something, but it wasn't very convincing. And eventually they had to go like uh, with a combination of um, uh, something flying through the air and a missile being dropped, all of which were taken from film and uh, and were, were put together in, in a uh, recording studio uh, and uh, then committed to a uh, a disc that would be set up so that you know when the time came for Superman to fly, they just drop the needle on this disc with the sound effect, bring up the volume, 
And uh, so eventually this, you'll hear the same flying sound that you hear on TV. You'll hear it in some of those episodes starting about the mid 1940s. The, the flying mm. sounds almost identical. Yep. And the opening of the show was almost identical word, word for word on both radio and TV as well. Yes, and some of that also showed up on the in the uh, Paramount cartoon series that was originally done by Max Fleischer. Those uh, some of the the faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. That actually came from the cartoons and was eventually used uh, on television. Yeah, and the yeah. main the main preamble, yes, it's Superman, strange visitor from another planet. That came from radio. Mm -hmm. All right, Phyllis Coates only lasted one year. She Why? Had, she had done a pilot for a situation comedy uh, starring Jack Carson. I think she was playing his wife, and it looked promising. It was created by it was written by guys who had. Uh, uh, written and produced I Love Lucy the year before. So she thought that this was much more promising and she opted not to renew her contract or she asked to be to be released from her contract, which which they did. And uh, and then they uh, the, the new producer in, in any event, by that point, Robert Maxwell had left. He was going on to do uh, a pilot for Lassie. He had for which he had obtained the rights and uh, was looking to build his own little TV empire. Um, and it was at that point that he finally left the employ of, uh, of National Comics and created, you know, he, and he had his own uh, corporation, Robert Maxwell Associates. So consequently, they needed a Lois Lane. And the new producer, Whitney Ellsworth, who happened to have been a consultant. He was like the, the comic book guy overseeing the production of the serials with Kirk Allen. Um, and also, he also oversaw the production of the first season of the TV show. So he was familiar with Reeves and, and Hamilton and all the others. So he, he, it was his decision to contact Noel Neal to find out if she was available and she was and she agreed to do the show and that's how she got cast and john hamilton who was perry white john hamilton was cast by bob maxwell and uh and uh, jack larson also and bob shane and and some of these guys got to do i always thought some pretty good acting um like for example uh reeves in the face and the voice got to play two different roles and i got a hunch he would have liked to have done that more yeah i think he had i think he had some fun with that one um obviously there's a show tell us the premise of that show well the face and the voice is about a master criminal who hires a uh pug wrestler who's you know who's past his prime or not wrestler but maybe a boxer or something like that somebody who was who was in the in the the gentleman's sport and who uh who's past his prime and not very intelligent and uh <laughs> pay, pays him pays him a lot of money to be superman and to to just walk in and steal stuff because nobody's going to try to stop him he's superman you can't stop him 
and he gets plastic surgery, etc., and comes out looking like I look like Superman. Why don't I sound like Superman? <laughs> and so I think, yeah, George Reeves got to play, uh, you know, kind of, kind of a slow-witted character with the slow-witted, uh, just on the verge <laughs> of of mentally deficient voice. Uh, who am I thinking of? I'm thinking of uh, Mortimer Snurd. The, 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 oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. The, with Edgar that comedy. Charlie with McCarthy. Edgar McCarthy. Yes. Yup, 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 yup. That, that kind of thing. Not, not quite yep. that's not quite that dim-witted, but, but still slow on the uptake. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, and it must've been interesting. Some of the, some of those, uh, there, there was, there were several um, evil twin uh, episodes in that series. Uh, Jack Larson got to have an evil twin in, in a later episode called Jibby the Kid. Yeah, and... I thought he was great in that show. Um, where Jimmy Olsen had a, where Jimmy had a double who, who uh, infiltrated the Daily Planet. Yep. And, and um, yeah, I liked that one. That was, that was very good. Jimmy the Kid. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Oh, I had another one in mind, and I well, let's go through some of the episodes because some of the sure. stuff that's in the book is uh, uh, like they were going to have it one way, and it, it came out another way on television. Um, like for example, Test of a Warrior. I like that show. Yeah, that was that was definitely one of the more interesting ones. It was years before I saw it, and I don't know why. Um, it didn't come up too often when when I was watching, but. Uh, yeah, that was a that was a fascinating one with Ralph Moody as a as a cantankerous uh, medicine man. Okati, uh, Okati, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, and of course, Superman is the great white bird. <laughs> yep, yep. And I'll tell you who else was in that show was George Lewis, who played Zorro's father on television. Uh-huh. See, I wasn't aware of that. Uh-huh. I'm glad I get to learn something. <laughs> now, I was watching some of this old stuff a couple of weeks ago, and I found something on a DVD where where Jack Larson and Noel Neal talked about an episode called Panic in the Sky, which uh, uh, Steinfeld wanted to watch with Larson because he thought that was one of his favorite shows oh jerry seinfeld you mean yes yeah yes panic in the sky yeah uh, seinfeld was doing uh, some superman themed commercials for american express and he got jack larson cast in one of them which i thought was sweet Mm. Mm. all right we talked about the flying on radio but what did they do on television way back then (laughs) <laughs> well, they had to try several things. I, I mean, if you watch some of the very earliest episodes, um, it's it's clear that uh, that George Reeves is is lying on some kind of a board that is not contoured to his body. And later on, they they took care to fix that. They uh, you know they they did a mold and created what they called the pan, which was uh, a, a thing that was molded to his his chest. He would lie on it, you know, just wearing an ordinary T-shirt or something. They'd slip the costume on over it and uh, then attach the cape. Um, 
this would be different from the costume that he wore uh, while actually acting on the set because the cape needed to flap in the breeze, but not too high. So they would secure it after he got into the rig and then they would secure the back of the cape with threads attached to like his legs or whatever, so that it wouldn't blow all over the place. And as you, if you watch the episodes and watch him flying in, even into the wind machine, you can see that the cape is, is uh, fairly steady. So yeah, okay. that's, and then that's eventually how they ended up. He did some flying on wires uh, during seasons one and two. They, they tried taking him off with wires, that famous shot of him leaping out of the alley. He's on a wire, uh, although it's, I, I believe that's actually a stunt man. Um, he gets, he, he was uh, lowered from a wire in Superman and the Mole Men when he does his first landing on screen. Uh, but uh, the wires broke on him at least once, probably twice, because mm. people remember it happening on two different occasions, once on the set of Mole Men and once on the set of an episode called Ghost Wolf. Um, they say that uh, that he the wire broke, the wire snapped on him twice. And when it happened the second time, he just he got up and said, that's it. Peter Pan flies on on wires but this superman definitely does not <laughs> and, <laughs> and they they worked out uh, they worked out other ways for him to do it basically lying on this on this pan which was held with a with a, uh, a hydraulic uh handle that uh, you couldn't see because his legs were masking it and uh and uh, the crew would bob him up and down a little bit or tilt him one way or tilt him the other way so that it looked like he was making a turn. Um, so it, it, that that's basically how they did it. Now, being visually impaired myself, I thought one of the better episodes that I enjoyed was Around the World with Superman. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is, that is a favorite of many people. And it's so sweet. Yeah, it is. Yep. Yep. It's, a very, it's a very, very sweet story about a young girl who, uh, because of a, an automobile accident, uh, her her uh, eyes are damaged and she's consequently been blinded. Uh, and Superman, uh, she enters a contest to fly around the world, but she enters under her mother's name because she wants her mother to win it and hopefully uh, be, be able to locate uh, her, uh, the father who has, uh, who has left. Um, and, uh, it's a sweet story. It brings about the reconciliation of a couple who had a difficult time because of the child's blindness, but now, and, uh, but eventually get reconciled. And of course, Superman using his x-ray vision sees the problem, the, the piece of glass that has impacted her optic nerve and helps a surgeon get it out of there. And consequently, her sight is restored. Yep. So, so as far as a human, human interest story, it's, it's one of the best for sure. Tell me about Professor Pepperwinkle. <laughs> Phillips Teed. Oh, what a scene stealer that guy was. <laughs> Just unbelievable. So the actor Phillips Teed comes on in during season three in an episode called the uh, seven souvenirs. And he plays a, a shop owner named Mr. Willie, who has a little side business where he 
he creates fake Superman souvenirs. Um, he also has some real ones. He's a real opportunist. He tries to get on the scene when Superman does something and he collects uh, like the bricks that came flying when Superman crashed through a wall or, you know, or whatever. But one, one of his side businesses is he has a drawer full of knives that he bends in a vice and he sells them as uh, knives that were attempted to be used on, have been used on Superman and of course bent against his skin. But as it turns out, some crafty scientist, it's a, it's a very complicated plot. This crafty scientist has the idea of using these knives <coughs> uh, to, to lure Superman, to trick Superman into using his X-ray vision on them. And he's set up a special set of knives that are locate, loaded with uh, some kind of special uranium that could only be activated with Superman's X-ray. So, or, or it's, it's radium, actually, not uranium, but radium. And, of course, that can, you know, it's, it's a lucrative thing, but it, and it's an amazing dis discovery. But, of course, it was done completely dishonestly. Um, and... Uh, so, but in any event, Mr. Willie in this episode, he's a dithery man with, uh, with an agenda and, but also very crafty. And he's, he's kind of a funny character at one point, George Reeves, actually, I I'm convinced it, uh, Clark Kent bursts out laughing at some of the stuff shtick this guy's doing. And I'm convinced it's, it's Reeves just laughing because Phillips teed is ad living. So I think everybody felt like we should bring this guy back every once in a while. And consequently, what they did was they created a character for him, the dithery Professor Pepperwinkle, with his astonishing inventions. Oh, I have to be careful with the microphone. I apologize. I probably was fiddling with it. Uh, okay. Um, but let's talk about some of the episodes. I can remember at least two one was called The Big Forget, uh, and the other was The Gentle Monster. Yes, those were both from the final season. The Big Forget, of course, was had to do with an anti-memory vapor spray that Pepperwinkle invented and that gets into the wrong hands, and they use it to pull off uh, major robberies simply by spraying their <laughs> victims with this stuff, and they don't remember that they've just been robbed. And uh, they don't remember who robbed them. So, of course, it falls, you know, Lois and Jimmy attempt to get involved in this thing. And uh, they're in over their heads as usual. And uh, at the same time, though, they bet the chief a raise that they can solve this case without Superman's help. So naturally, they pick the absolute perfect case to do it because Clark Kent has to reveal his identity in front of everybody. And then he uses the anti-memory vapor on them so they'll forget that he just unveiled his true identity. Um, but at the same time, it also has the added benefit of them getting rescued and not realizing that Superman <laughs> facilitated that rescue. <laughs> and and the other one? Um, the other one, the gentle monster? monster? That, was, that was an interesting one. Because Pepperwinkle personality changes you know in all the other episodes uh his first appearance was topsy-turvy where he invents the machine that makes you think that you're upside down 
That sounds like a real practical invention. <laughs> then, then he then he invents the 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 telephone booth that will transport you through telephone wires to another city. Whatever city you're calling, as long as somebody picks up the other end of the phone, you will be transmitted through the wire, and you'll show it's better than a Star Trek transporter. Yeah, <laughs> yep. it's but it's expensive, as he says <laughs> at the end. Oh, the long distance bill. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So, so it's it's these weird inventions that get everybody into trouble. But now he's invented a robot as a companion because he's an old lonely man. He's he doesn't have a wife or family or anything, and he just wants a companion. Unfortunately, the robot is powered by this strange green glowing meteorite that he found in his yard that has amazing properties that he's never discovered that he's never uh, understood but it's able to really power this robot and give it super strength well guess what the green metal happens to be kryptonite <laughs> of course and and of course the criminals get wind of all of this and they appropriate the robot and kidnap pepperwinkle uh, so that they can use the robot to commit robberies. Thus, no fingerprint evidence or anything like that. They're not even present. They're just directing it from afar. So, you know, jewelry robberies and what have you. And uh, so Superman has to get involved to wrap this up. But every time he gets close to the robot, he loses his strength. So it's, uh, it's quite a challenge. Ghost of Scotland Yard. Oh, you're going for the for the macabre now, huh? Yep, love that show. <laughs> Season Loved two, it. yes. Leonard Moody uh, was was uh, that Brockhurst? That was Brockhurst, yes, sir. That was a a very very good uh, good episode about a uh, a very jealous magician who was believed to who faked his own death. And he did it primarily to drive his benefactor crazy. And, uh, you know, the guy who employed him. Yep. Arthur McCready. Arthur McCready. Yep. Yep. Uh, Sir Arthur. There was another one where Superman had to split into two people. Divide and Conquer. Season six. Yeah, that was that was an interesting show, too. And as I wrote in the book, there was a lot of stuff in that episode that wasn't used. Uh, I think probably it, uh, it, the direction could have been a little more taut and they could have, uh, uh, you know, if people had uh, not been so uh, lackadaisical, um, the, the pacing wasn't quite right. It. it it, it could have been a little bit more swiftly paced and consequently they could have used some more of the material that was in the original script. Um, but it was, it was a fascinating show nonetheless. And some people have problems with the idea of Superman having these powers on TV that never existed in the comic books. Um, splitting in two, walking through a wall in the next episode, the mysterious cube. Yeah. Um, I like that one. Yep. Cause the, the 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 guy had been in this cube for seven years or something and was waiting ready to be declared legally, legally dead. dead. Yep, waiting for the statute of limitations to run out so that they could be declared legally dead and then and walk around a free man. And Superman got them to slow his clock down and <laughs> Yeah. He got he got Arlington to slow their clock down, the whatever it was, the US Navy that uses it by uh 
radio signals. So, uh, yeah, I actually speed up the time signals so that when he thought it was seven, it was actually 10 minutes of or whatever the time was. And yeah, so uh, clever plot. Uh, Can't deny that. But that was co-written by Whitney Ellsworth, same as Divide and Conquer. Uh, these were, and Wit, of course, had written for the comic books for years and years, and, and as well as uh, some of the newspaper continuities, because both Superman and Batman had uh, daily strips. So, you know, he had plenty of writing experience, and he was a very creative guy. Um, now, we talked yeah. about one show where Superman had to uh, show his identity. There was another one where in a dream sequence, uh, Lois Lane actually found out that Superman was Clark Kent. Yes, that would be the wedding of Superman. That was Noelle Neal's favorite episode. Uh, Understandably so. She gets to display a lot of emotion and uh, she's really the focus of the story. Yes. And uh, a master criminal. Yep, a master criminal. Well, it's all in her dream, really. There aren't, there actually in real life, there aren't any criminals. She's just dreamed this whole scenario. Yep. Um, and, uh, and, but she knows what's, you know, in, she has to know what's going on. She's too good a reporter to not realize it. She just can't prove it. He always manages to slip away, you know, so the only way it could happen would be as, it does in her dream where he falls in love with her and confesses, yes, I am Clark Kent. Now, there was a very beautiful actress around at the time, uh, and she was in one Superman episode, and it's the only thing I know of that she was in. It was Joy Lansing, mm-hmm. and uh, it was... Superman's wife. Yes. Superman's wife. That was another from the final season um yeah she well she of course was in uh uh was it life with bob the bob cummings uh show. i she think played so one, yes one of his models one of his regulars yeah yeah but that was her only superman appearance sergeant o'hara yes 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 but but there were some other people that were shown two or three times and i can think of two off the top of my head one was dabs greer and another one was Herb Vigrin. Yes. Although I think I think out of all of them, Ben Ben Weldon did the most. Uh he's he's another he was the the squat balding guy who was yeah. uh he was in several of them. Um but yeah, there was a stable of actors. It's like the same thing with Dragnet and Jack Webb. These guys were pros, they did the job, they didn't waste time. Uh, which meant they weren't wasting anybody's money and uh, utter professionals and perfectly capable of playing different roles at any time. So, yeah, naturally you wanted to bring these guys back. Uh, Nobody had any problems with that. Nobody had any, you know, the show was airing once a week. Uh, You saw these guys once or twice a year. Uh, It didn't matter that they weren't the exact same criminal. They were basically the exact same character, and that was good enough. Kind of a hypothetical question here. Mm-hmm. Um, John Hamilton, who played Perry White, passed away in 1958. Mm-hmm. And there had been talk, if I remember correctly, of the series resuming. Yes. If that had happened, what would they have? Had they made any plans, contingency plans, like maybe Perry's brother 
or it, yeah, somebody that, to play him? That was Noel Neal's recollection. And, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to state for the record that Noel, uh, I've read her, her, uh, autobiography and, um, you know, I, I got to meet her a few times. She's a lovely lady, a wonderful person. Her memory is not 100% accurate. What she remembered was that they were going to put Perry on some kind of a long-term assignment and his brother would be uh, sitting in for him. And the, they were going to get the actor who played Perry White in the serials, Pierre Watkin, who had appeared on the TV show as other characters from time to time, both good and bad. So consequently, you know, that that was the that was what she recalled. Nobody else recalled that. And while I have seen uh, newspaper articles from the day saying that, yes, the series is going to come back. There were a few uh, articles just before George Reeves died uh, that said, yes, the, the show is going to go back into production. Um, nobody ever speculated on on, or, or said definitively what was going to happen with, uh, with the part of Perry White. I mean, theoretically, more, they could have cast him. I will tell you two more, because we're running out of time, sure. but two more of my favorites. One was Beware the Wrecker, and the other one was Jet Ace. Oh, Beware the Wrecker was, uh, that's a sentimental favorite, because I used to have the old Kenner Easy Show projector. Uh, when I was a child, I got it like at Christmas 65. And one of the films was a Superman film. And it was like two minutes of, of Beware the Wrecker. So I get to crank my little projector and watch him take off. And then I could run it backwards so that it <laughs> and run it over and over again. I broke it so, so many times I bought that film. I must have bought it like a half a dozen times. And I just run it until the film snapped. <laughs> now, uh, but yeah the episode itself is great it's really they, they were you know after 9-11 while superman was still airing on on some things they were kind of i think they were thinking in terms of pulling that from the rotation because really? because of this guy who was was a terrorist basically it was about a terrorist yep. the wrecker yep. was a terrorist he was blowing up ships he was blowing up airplanes um and, and uh, that wasn't cool after 9-11. So I think they may have put that show on hiatus for a little while. But yeah, uh, a very sophisticated story. And uh, from season two, one of many. Same with, same with uh, Jet Ace. And that too was based on, uh, partially on radio. Chris White, Perry White's nephew, the pilot, shows up in uh, one of the serial continuities, I think in 1942 or 43. Now, I've seen that man in at least three Fury episodes. Uh, I've seen him in a couple of Gunsmokes. Who played Chris White's uncle? I mean, uh, who played, who played Chris, Chris White? Chris White? Yeah. Oh, what was his name? You know, now I'm going to... Lucky <laughs> you, I have the book right in front of me. <laughs> and I can just <laughs> jump to that to episode. That, guy was. that is Lane Bradford, who was known as a uh, was mainly seen in westerns, B westerns, and uh, and so forth. But that that's right. who that was, Lane Bradford. Now, very quickly, um, I know it's been years and years. Did Reeves shoot himself because he couldn't find other roles? Did he have? Uh, I, I often hear about an actress named Tony Maddox. Um, 
why did why did Reeves do what he did? Uh, I think, you know, I, I I don't I hate to commit because there's going to be somebody who says, no, he absolutely committed. Uh, he absolutely did not commit suicide. He was murdered. Um, and you know what? Everybody is dead. So real yep. quickly, my I, I went through a lot of years believing that he was murdered. Um, I happened to see the, the eventually the some of the autopsy photos surfaced, particularly photos around the head wound. And it was clear that the gun was pressed against his head. Uh, He wasn't shot from 18 inches away, which is what some people were contending. Um, My gut feeling is that because his blood alcohol content was so high and he had just found out that morning that the show was definitely going to go into production, the money from Kellogg's had been secured or at least promised, and it was going to go back into production in September. And he did a lot of celebrating and he and his then girlfriend were observed having some kind of a loud discussion while they were out partying and they came back to the apartment he had a searing headache he was hung oh, he was uh, intoxicated and uh, probably hung over some guests came to the house late at night and this was apparently something he had Uh, done before he had scared her into thinking that he was going to commit suicide he took the gun and one a few weeks before and fired it into the floor and that's why there were extra bullet holes Hmm. so consequently the uh the thing is is that he was not in his right mind he had also been in an auto accident in april and he had been prescribed painkillers for that and may have still been taking them And between that and the alcohol, I think it was, I honestly believe that, that if in fact he did commit suicide, it was temporary insanity. A good night's sleep would have just taken care of that. But he, you know, he did have depressive moments. There are people who have said that over the years that he could get depressed about the way his career was going and so forth. And he would turn to his favorite numbing medication, which was a hard drink. Um, and uh, overindulge in that from time to time. So, and he also could get very up. He could, you know, when it looked like he was going to be going back to work, even if it was in that costume and cape again, at least he was going to have more income and he was going to have more directing uh, assignments because he did direct the last three TV episodes of season six. And that was part and parcel of the deal, I understand. And him going back, he would get more directorial jobs uh, with the show. So there was much to celebrate and there were a lot of things going on in his life that were just uh, uh, out of his control. Well, I'll tell you, it's it's a great book. Uh, It was a great loss when when Reeves did what he did. And uh, uh, it's kind of sad in a way that it all had to end like that because it was it was a great show. I loved it. You loved it. You've got a great book on it. Uh, you got anything we can look forward to? <laughs> well, first of all, I want to thank you for for calling me. As as I think you know, this book is not new. It's been out since 2009. Uh, but I did do a few years ago uh, an audio book uh, version. My publisher, Bear Manor Media, released it on audio. Uh, and uh, we ha- I have been to be a member of a club called the Metropolitan Washington Old Time Radio Club 
we do some performances from time to time. We do some recreations. We've done them at the Library of Congress and in other places. And I just thought it'd be fun to bring the guys together to do these scenes that have never been seen before, that were actually in the written scripts that uh, got cut for time or for other reasons. Uh, and it would be fun to recreate them at least as uh, for the audiobook, at least as, as a sort of radio show type of thing where you have people, actors playing the characters. So I got club members together and a few close friends and uh, family members. And we just had a ball doing that. And, and I hope if people do get the audio version, the audiobook version, that they will uh, seek out that sec, the episode guides, because a lot of those scenes are there. Uh, and, and you'll hear some stuff that uh, parts of episodes that you're not familiar with because they never got filmed or they yep, got cut from the film. It. Yeah, it was on iTunes. Well, that's great. And uh, and I hope other people will follow your lead because we had a lot of fun doing it. And uh, it's, it's a good way to hear material that it, it's the closest you'll get to a deleted scenes on a DVD. Uh, yep, the, yep. The, the scenes don't actually exist, so they've been recreated for you. And uh, that to me was it was a lot of fun doing it. And that's what I would really like to see happen is more people listen to the uh, to the audio book version. It's great, flights great, of fantasy, great, great. flights of fantasy, the unauthorized but true story of radio and TV's adventures of Superman. You got you got to write another book, Michael. I want to have you back again. <laughs> well, that depends upon what you what we what we could talk about. What do you like to talk about? I do have other books, of course. Uh, my last book was about Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis's radio and TV work that came out in ah. 2018. So, ah, okay. Uh, well, we can do that absolutely. Uh, um, but but you're fascinating to talk with. I I didn't get a chance to ask you, and we're out of time. And I didn't do it on the last one because I forgot about it, but I wanted you to take some time and talk about Claude Cooper and the copper caper, but we don't have time. <laughs> well, maybe we can do it. Maybe we can do a dragnet show in the near future. We can do another one. All right, Michael, you take care of yourself again. You? Thank you so much. And thank uh, you for having me back. You're, you're yeah. a delight to talk with. And uh, I just wish you all the best in whatever else you accomplish. If you, if you have other things you want to talk about, by all means, give me a call because I'm right. yours. Well, thank you, all Ken. Right, sir. I appreciate that. And that Take will care. do it for another edition of City Talk. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's K-J-M-E-Y-E-R-7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.